The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigee and Technologies. Today, we welcome our friend and colleague, Julie Gore. Julie is a reader in organizational psychology at the, at the School of Management at the University of Bath in the UK. Julie is a chartered psychologist and a fellow of the British Psychological Society. Her research focus is on the psychology of expertise and naturalistic decision-making. She studies a range of professionals who work in the midst of uncertainty. Julie is also an editor for the Journal of Occupational and Organizational Psychology, and she serves on the boards of the British Journal of Management and Frontiers in Organizational Psychology. Julie is an academic advisor for NASDAQ's Behavioral Science Lab. And one more interesting fact about Julie is that she received one of the world's first NDM PhD degrees in applied cognitive psychology from Oxford Brookes University in the UK. So welcome, Julie. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. So I am uh, curious about um, your kind of groundbreaking work as one of the first NDM PhD degrees. And I wonder what that was like. Were there barriers to doing NDM research in a traditional applied psychology program? Um, I think things in the UK 20, 25 years ago were quite different. Um, I was actually in a faculty of business um, and I had a supervisor, Professor John Mall at the University of Leeds, um, and a supervisor from the University of Oxford, who is a sociologist. And I set my own research question and research direction for my PhD program. So it was much more open than some of the very structured programs that we would see today. Um, so when I became interested in naturalistic decision-making, I was interested in decision-making per se, and John Moore's background is in traditional behavioral decision research. Um, I just had to convince him that going to NDM in Dayton for a conference was a good idea. I convinced him. I went, I met Rona Flynn at the poolside (laughs) whilst I was reading um, Models and Methods, and she said, is it any good? And I was like, yeah, it's really good. And I've been hooked ever since. Nice. So how did you hear about the NDM meeting? Back then we were small and not well publicized. I think that I just was a curious researcher. And at the, back then, I mean, it was quite strange because we used to work off microfiche and I must have read something and it I think it may have been Renan Leipschitz who had mentioned NDM at another meeting. And I just thought that sounds really interesting. That sounds much more like the types of decisions that I'm observing within the management community. Um, And so it was kind of um, by accident rather than design, but a great accident. Nice. Yeah. And so you said you were working with um, faculty in, in a business school. Mm-hmm. Um, so what was your research question that you used for your PhD research? I was looking at exploring hospitality managers' decision-making processes. Um, and I used 
semi-structured interviews um, to access details and stories and narratives about their everyday decision making. So I didn't only explore naturalistic decision making in that context. I looked at how rational they were and also whether or not they were using any heuristics and biases in their decision making. Interesting. And so by hospitality managers, are these hotel managers or? Indeed, hotel managers working in five-star hotels. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they had really um, a whole range of managers. So some of them would be in finance, some of them in marketing, some of them in frontline services. Um, The most interesting ones were those who worked in banqueting, who kind of were responsible for organizing huge events, which sometimes would be external to the hotel. You can imagine um, catering for 500 people. You have the weather, you have all kinds of aspects of uncertainty going on. So they had quite challenging um, decisions to make on a day-to-day basis. Interesting. And so did you learn anything surprising that was surprising 20 years ago when you did this? (laughs) I think it was surprising how much expertise they utilized because all of the management um, literature at that time was, you know, full of rational models or full of heuristics and biases and full of lots of negativity about human behavior. But the behavior that I observed and the cognition that I recorded were really positive elements of, you know, people doing really great jobs. Nice, nice. And so you mentioned that you thought in some ways um, academic PhD programs have become more structured over time. Um, and, and so I'm wondering in your role now at the University of Bath, when you encounter students who want to do NDM research as part of their graduate work, um, what, what advice do you give them? I still say go for it. I think it's a challenge. I think there's still a theoretical challenge Um, within some areas of academia for NDM. And and I encourage my students to use um, cognitive task analysis methods. I've actually examined more PhD students in NDM um, in traditional psychology departments um, than I ever thought I would do. And that's been a real privilege. Um, So I still encourage them, but the challenges of conquering all areas um, of academia are still not quite there yet. Sure. Yeah. And so do you, um, I imagine some students come to Bath because they want to work with you because you're an NDM researcher. Um, I'm wondering, uh, do you feel like you have to advocate for this perspective, um, with other, uh, faculty at the university? Um, I do. Yes. I think that that is, um, that's been the challenge of my career, I think, um, in lots of ways that I've been championing NDM and being an advocate. Um, And so students come to me who are often um, have a background in human factors or engineering um, or mainstream psych, and they want to move into an applied area. And in the UK, that's actually much easier to do in a management school or an engineering department than it is in a mainstream psychology department. And so what um, what are the kind of common objections or, or barriers you hear that you're helping students manage? 
Um, that's a really difficult question, I think. I think one of the questions um, was kind of quashed a little um, when Gary Klein and Daniel Kahneman came together in their article about a failure to disagree, where they, they agree to disagree about whether or not um, intuition exists and expertise exists as a concept. Um, and I think there's something about the development of science that often, as qualitative researchers, naturalistic decision researchers, um, it's not that we're not concerned by the numbers, but the numbers don't always have meaning for us. And sometimes I, th I think that that dominant mode of thought about numbers having more resonance is still evident. It, it's definitely within some areas of science. Yeah, that definitely resonates with me as well. I, there, there are some some schools of thought that that really uh, value a quantitative approach, almost to the exclusion. I mean, uh, yeah, almost to the exclusion of a qualitative approach, mm, yeah. rather than, than appreciating the strengths of both. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, my students have been in all different areas. Um, so they've been working in healthcare, in finance, um, PhDs. I've supervised have looked at emergency services they've been reading working at the hard end um, of uncertainty in professional groups but I think sometimes there's a challenge between doing that type of work and publishing that type of work sure. so Julie as, as you're working with these students is there anything in particular that you're seeing in them uh, in their practice and the way that they sort of comport themselves or, or think about the the research and the methods and the models or anything that really surprises you and and also is there anything that really concerns you i don't think it's a surprise that their their socio-technological competence is far greater than us you know when we were students maybe 20 25 years ago i think their ability to navigate the technology to navigate the literature um, for research is far superior um perhaps um, than 20, 25 years ago. I think I do get concerned about where applied psychology fits and I get concerned about the metricization um, that lots of science places on where you publish or how you publish. And there's a whole debate going on at the moment around the world about how, how do we recognize what is good science? How do we measure that? How do we value it? Um, and how can we take into account um, different forms of research and innovation and insight? And for me, NDM has always been insightful and creative and it inspires my students um, in lots of different ways. And I, I teach naturalistic decision making on a, a wider course to undergraduate students and to MBA students. And they become very captivated by the naturalistic decision-making movement um, and by research stories. So I'll keep doing it. <laughs> so, so can you share with us any, uh, any particular examples of, of students realizing that this is uh, a worthwhile uh, venture and bringing NDM into their sort of mental models about how they think about the world? Do you have any particular stories that, really show that uh, transformation happen? 
Um, I think in terms of PhD students that I've examined their theses who, for example, Nikki Power, who was at um, the University of Liverpool being supervised by Lawrence Allenson, she looked at emergency decision-making, decision-making under a crisis, looking at emergency services coming together. And she was utilising not only methods from naturalistic decision-making, but also traditional um, methods of inquiry in terms of looking at transcripts of verbal protocol analysis and such like. Um, But for her, as soon as she began to talk to the practitioners, naturalistic decision-making models and recognition prime decision-making in particular came to life. And I think that happened for me as a student. And I often see that um, whether students, I have another uh, PhD student, Matt Woodward, who's at the University of Cambridge, who's looking at um, decision-making of practitioners um, in bed capacity management and he has looked at all kinds of different models of decision making but he comes back to the naturalistic ones again and again because they have great value and great meaning and I think they more accurately describe what goes on inside the heads of practitioners when they're making decisions under extreme uncertainty. Yeah, that, that's really interesting that students can have that sort of insight uh, and yet getting to that point to be able to, to have that insight is a very difficult thing mm-hmm. because the student themselves might not understand the models, might not be very good interviewers, and then the practitioners that they are interviewing also might not be experts, they might not have many examples to share. So. Just creating the conditions to enable that insight to happen is, is a pretty tricky thing. Agreed, yeah. Yeah, you can see why people are drawn to experiments sometimes. They're so much easier to control. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to circle back, Julie. Like one of the things I'm hearing you say is that universities value a certain type of publication mm-hmm. and that NDM doesn't always fit in that space. Um, but I see that you are an editor, an associate editor, and on the edi- editorial board of other journals. Um, and so it, it sounds like you are kind of on the front line trying to make space for uh, this kind of research in, in the academic literature. Yeah, um, absolutely. That, has, okay. So that has been kind of one of your, your drives there. Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, the Journal of Occupational and Organizational Psychology published a special issue in naturalistic decision-making, which I edited along with people like Rona Flynn and William Wong, Neville Stanton. Um, And it took me, um, I would say, three and a half years to negotiate being able to produce that publication for that journal. Wow. And as one of the contributors to that special issue, I felt like I got some of the best editorial feedback um, that I've ever had, like the the, the reviewers f- that you lined up were really, really, really thorough. That was a, a good experience for me. That's great to hear. I think that that what that particular um, um, publication did was opened up um, the Journal of Occupational Organizational Psychology, Dupe, as we call it for short. It opened up up the possibility of other 
qualitative researchers, not only then NDM researchers, but other researchers in the qualitative space. And so we've definitely seen a lot more contributions from NDM researchers and qualitative applied psychologists, which has been great. Nice. Yeah. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, I know that you work with NASDAQ, and I'm sure a lot of people are aware of NASDAQ as this global marketplace for buying and selling securities, but might be surprised to hear that NASDAQ has a behavioral science lab um, that consults with NDM researchers. And so I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about your work with them, what kind of questions they bring to you. Um, I've been involved with NASDAQ for a number of years now. Um, the head of behavioral science, Wendy Jefferson, was a former um, psych student at the University of Surrey, where I previously was. Um, and Wendy has really championed human factors research and naturalistic decision making. And the types of projects that she's got me involved with have been utilizing cognitive task analysis methods to look at some of their professionals who have got um, problems with um, interfacing with massive amounts of data. They tend to look, their compliance officers look at huge numbers of, of screens, of vast amounts of information. And some people are more expert at it than others, um, you know, detecting rogue trading. Um, and so I've often been involved in the, the start points of those projects to collect um, interview data task analysis data to represent, you know, work as it really is rather than work as imagined. Um, and the work as imagined in the standard operating procedures at NASDAQ sometimes bears very little resemblance um, to what actually those professionals do. Um, so that's helped them build new operating systems. At the moment, they're um, building new software to help decision makers um, which have been based on cognitive task analysis interviews and critical decision interviews. So I've helped their behavioral science team utilize some of the NDM methods. It's great fun. Yeah, that sounds fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, so I imagine a lot of that work is proprietary and you can't publish it. Yes. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but very cool that that's even going on. Yeah. And but but a good good attempt, Laura, to try to get at some of that uh, information. That would be, be nice for us to all know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, that, yeah, no, some of my most interesting work, um, like many of us in naturalistic decision making, um, I'm not allowed to talk about. Um, and so that kind of, that's quite tough. But what I am allowed to say is that um, I sometimes work with UK government specialists um, working on investigative interviewing. Very interesting. Wow. Um, yeah, you have a very cool life, Julie. Um, <laughs> so what is the most exciting thing you're working on right now? What are, what are you uh, excited about these days? Um, at the moment, I've just won a research grant to look at um, accountability and ethics in decision making in digital ecosystems. So that research is just kicking off um, as part of a new network of researchers who are multidisciplinary, looking at um, security, privacy and identity and trust um, 
So that I'm really excited about. We're actually um, generating research questions um, to look at accountability and ethics further. Um, and my role is really to look and talk to different stakeholders and different groups of people who are already in the security space to say how um, how are they utilizing their expertise. And so is this um, in the context of like social media or banking or all of that or? It's, it's all of that. It's really big um, thinking. Um, the EPSRC, which is um, a UK government sponsored funder, has funded um, a group of universities to set about looking for really interesting research questions. So for the next two years, we'll be working with stakeholders in health, in the military, in policing, in finance, in banking, in all kinds of different organizations and asking them what are their biggest challenges in accountability and ethics um, and decision making in a digital platform. So interesting. So you're on the ground floor kind of figuring out what are some of the, the important research questions to invest additional research in. Yeah. So the, that, that's at the end of two years, we'll make recommendations based not only on academic theoretical models about what's going on in this space, but also really most importantly, from the stakeholder sp- perspectives, what are important to them, what are their challenges, um, and hopefully by recommending further research questions, we'll generate um, sponsorship from different organisations, but also sponsorship from the government to look at these questions in greater detail in the next you know, five to ten years. And will stakeholders include public or end users as well as the folks developing and, and monitoring these systems? Yes. Yeah. Wow. It's a, it's a model that's used quite frequently now in the UK um, in order to um, generate research questions that are important to stakeholders, important to different user groups, um, and that um, make you know university funding, which is very limited in some respects, make it be stretched as far as possible to make it sure it's looking at the the most valuable questions for theoretical understanding, but also for practical impact. Yeah, it's such a great model to, to take the time to do the foundational work to really understand what are the societal needs um, and align those with, with theoretical questions. Julie, I'm wondering, do you anticipate not getting traction in any of these areas, any of these domains? Uh, based on experience you've had in the past of of just not being able to convince uh, folks in a given sector or domain that this is the right kind of approach to take in terms of an NDM perspective? Um, I, whenever I've walked into organizations, be it in engineering, in health, in, in all kinds of different organizational contexts, and when I work with MBA students who are from lots of different organizational backgrounds they love ndm they love the approach they really get it it has great meaning for them um my challenge is to convince 
all of the management academic community that it's um, a worthy science and it is worthy of pursuing. So you, you mentioned earlier sort of this qualitative, quantitative issue that always seems to crop up. Are there other themes or challenges you've seen with, with trying to get traction and trying to convince folks to, to go down a particular road? No, I don't think so. I think because mm. of the, 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 the way that we now have a research excellence framework exercise in the UK, um, which sometimes can be very limiting in terms of saying to researchers, you must publish in this type of journal rather than that type of journal. And that that is a challenge, I think, for, for junior scholars and early career researchers because they're encouraged to publish in very established journals. Whereas I think a lot of mo the most creative and insightful science happens in newer journals, which might not have um, such great um, citation met metrics associated with them. So, so the challenge for getting traction seems to be in the outputs. Yes. Interesting. Okay. So it's not even the, the methods and models per se. It's, it's where you're going to put your outputs, where you're going to show your research that, that can be limiting from the start. Yeah, I think that um, showing the 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 utility of NDM methods has been really showcased by the CREST um, Centre, which is the Centre for Research Evidence and Security Threats. This is, a, again, another great big um, organisation and collective of universities who've been very, very prolific in putting together information about NDM methods and decision-making methods and getting them out to practitioners and stakeholder groups. And I think they've done a great job in doing that, but making sure that that there is a stronger academic theoretical imperative um, is still, that's it's still, we're still working on it. I just, I, um, I, I hear this theme through your whole career is kind of pushing forward, making space for NDM you know, putting it on in the spotlight. Um, uh, so anyway, I'm just, I'm just appreciating all the work you're doing to kind of carry this forward. Um, even though it's, it's hard there, there are, you, you come up against barriers along the way. Thank you, Laura. Um, <laughs> I love the research. I genuinely think it adds a different story and a different narrative um, to cognition. And I think that looking at positive aspects of human behavior and human cognition are really, really important. Agreed. Agreed. So if you think back over your career, is there one project that stands out that was particularly rewarding um, to you? I think the, the work that I was involved with looking at adaptive expertise for the MOD with um, a a team of researchers with Paul Ward um, and Gareth Conway and Robert Hoffman and Rob Hutton um, and other people from Trimetis was a really fantastic um, opportunity. We worked on a couple of projects together looking at taking stock of what adaptive expertise means um, to military organisations and that was that was great to be part of a team of researchers across the world 
Um, and also it was great to have impact for that organization. And that work is continuing. Um, Rob Hutton is continuing some of the work to look at ways that we can think about improving um, reflections upon decision making and you know, reducing the, the gap between novice and experts and rethinking about the way that we can educate um, you know, military leaders, military commanders. Um, and as part of that work, um, I was invited very recently to um, the UK um, Defence Academy. Um, and I guess that's one of my um, personal kind of uh, personal greatest achievements, really, is that um, now naturalistic decision making is on the um, syllabus for the Defence Academy. Um, nice. And that, that's great. That is great. So I, um, I really appreciate this work you guys have done. I have actually been uh, citing uh, uh, one of the adaptive expertise papers uh, your team put together quite a bit. I wondered if you would um, tell our listeners um, just a little bit about adaptive expertise. I think, I think it's an interesting way of, of thinking about and characterizing expertise. Um, will you just talk about that a little bit? Sure. I think, um, as Robert Hoffman quite rightly says, adaptive expertise is a bit of a, you know, it's a bit of a misnomer, really, because by design, experts are adaptive. Um, but the term that we were asked to look at um, was given to us by um, DSTL and the MOD because they were concerned about it. Um, we looked at the, the academic literature in lots of different fields to find out how it was defined, how it's been measured, how it's been explored, and we were quite well, we were quite surprised that that, that actually um, adaptivity and expertise hasn't been looked at as much as you would think. And if you're beginning to think about how to educate for adaptivity or train for adaptivity, what do you do? What can you do? Um, and we make recommendations, suggestions. Um, drawn on a lot of the work that Paul Ward has completed and then Martin Schragen um, and Gary and Robert and others who look at different ways of improving performance um, and reflecting on how we can think like an expert. Um, and I think there are lots of different ways that we can be more creative um, in thinking about expertise. So I think a lot of folks um, in the NDM community think about expertise in terms of the RPD model, right? So you recognize something and you kind of know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, and and I, I think your work in adaptive expertise is emphasizing a, a, another aspect of expertise. And I'm, I'm wondering if you can just, if you have an example at the, at the front of your mind of this, this is a great example of what we mean by adaptive expertise, what we're trying to emphasize with that term. I think that adaptation is dependent on context, Laura. I think the, the context and the level of uncertainty um, that brings to bear on people's mental models, on their so their own mental model, their interaction with other models within their team is affected by the context, but it's having an awareness of that effect um, that I think is important and I think that we can educate for. 
Interesting. So you think about a military commander and, and, and part of what this, this, this concept of, of adaptive expertise is, is that, that even in, in novel and unexpected situations, they're able to bring their experience to the table and Absolutely. move forward. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I think this is a really important emphasis, and I'm 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 really enjoying reading this work and and thinking about um, uh, what that implications are for training um, in some of my work. So, thank you. Well, it also seems particularly relevant these days, as we're in a bit of a novel circumstance. Are you seeing opportunities uh, to push that work forward, just in the strange context we're in now, Julie? Yes and no. I think there's lots of opportunity. There's lots of my inbox is full of requests to think about ideas. But I, at the moment, I think we need a little bit of, bit of time to pause to reflect and actually improve our situation awareness of the unusual situation before we begin to make um, firm recommendations. I mean, there are lots of different things that NDM could do in terms of utilizing expertise. And I think there's lots of work that could be done in terms of how we can transfer our understanding of expertise to different groups within different professional contexts. But in terms of the big picture, um, I think we need a little more time to reflect. Yeah, that makes sense. So I am wondering if you can tell us about three people who have influenced your approach over the course of your career. I think it might be the same three people that lots of people say. So um, Gary Klein, <laughs> Robert Hoffman, and um, of course, Rona Flynn, and I might allowed several more, Kathy Mosier and Judith Arasani. Um, Kathy Mosier in particular, I get really excited about her work and her backstory, I think, is um, an amazing one. Um, before she was a scientist, she had a different career as a flight attendant. And I think that um, her understanding of teams and groups and contributions to work in NASA has been just really inspiring. Nice. Yeah. All of those have been very influential for me as well. Um, what about outside the NDM community? Who has, has really changed the way you think about things? I think, um, I don't know if you recall, Laura, but many years ago, one of the NDM conferences, Guy Claxton, who is a cognitive um, educationalist, came and spoke at an NDM meeting. And he wrote a little book called Hair, Brain, Tortoise, Mine how intelligence improves when you think less. And his work is, he's, he's now um, semi-retired, but his work is, as an educational psychologist, looks at ways we can improve thinking, we can improve creativity, and also how we can um, step back from the situation and give ourselves a little bit more time um, to think about big problems and difficult situations. Um, he also has a really inspiring um, series of books working with children and um, improving educational practice. 
and and I think his work is is particularly compelling. He's written many many things. He's a prolific writer. Has written over thirty books. So he's definitely worth a read. The Hairbrain Tortoise Mind. Nice. Yeah. I uh, I do remember his talk, um, but I have not followed up. I should I should I should check out some of what he's written. Yeah. Thank you. So Julie, you, you've been to many uh, of the NDM uh, conferences and even organized one yourself. Uh, I'm wondering, just broad stroke, if you've seen any changes that um, that you've noticed uh, in the community since your kind of early days of involvement. I think the same energy is still in the NDM conferences. I think people get really excited by making a difference um, to people's working lives. And I think that remains the kind of glue that keeps the community together in lots of ways. Um, but it's also been great to see theoretically um, developments in macrocognition. Um, next year, you know, moving to work with the Resilience Engineering Group, I think that could be a great opportunity to look at different ways of thinking about cognition. Um, I think NDM has moved from strength to strength. So let's presume you, you meet a complete stranger who claims to practice NDM and uh, on the pain of death, you're given one question to determine if they do indeed practice NDM. What would you ask them? Um, Brian, is this in terms of thinking about a, a practitioner or an academic? That wasn't part of my question. So let's mm. see. Uh, how about both? Let's give us both. Okay. If it was an academic um, suggesting that they were practicing NDM, I would ask them, what is a heuristic? And the practitioner? And the practitioner, I would probably ask them, when do you use your intuition? And what are your criteria for determining the answers to those questions being indicative of an NDM practitioner? Especially the heuristic one. What, what answer are you looking for? I think that, that anybody who is a real NDM practitioner would say a heuristic can be a positive aspect of cognition. That because is a think, great, yeah, that's a great distinguisher. Sorry to cut you off. And for the practitioner, I think that um, asking when do you use your intuition, having an awareness of what NDM is means that they're aware of their expertise. Yeah, so the reason I like that heuristic question is I feel like in a lot of circles that is, is seen as a negative. A heuristic is, a, is a, a, a something that causes humans to mess up and make mistakes. Um, and that the NDM emphasis on, on heuristics as a, um, an efficient way to, to, to act uh, in a positive way under stress uh, is not appreciated by, by all. So that, that's a really clever distinguisher. Yeah. All right. So looking forward, um, what are you looking forward to next in terms of your research? Where do you, where do you hope to go next? Um, well, I hope to find some really interesting questions looking at accountability and ethics. Um, 
but also I would like to be able to write a book for my students which maps um, the history of NDM um, and provides um, a forum for them to read that's easy and accessible. I've been saying I've been going to do it for years. <laughs> I've talked to several publishers, um, so I would love to do that. Um, the experience of writing and co-editing the Oxford Handbook um, was really inspiring, and I felt very humbled that so many people um, gave up so much of their time um, to document their work and document all of their interesting stories of NDM. I love this idea of a, a book about the history of NDM that is very readable and accessible for students. That would be a great contribution. We should write it. <laughs> we should. I'd, I'd be happy to help. <laughs> great. All right. So now, now we move on to the fun question. I'm going to ask you to tell us two truths about two truths about yourself and one lie. And then Brian and I will both guess which is the lie. <laughs> this is so hard for me. Um, okay. Um, three things. Um, firstly, I once had a job that had a direct telephone to the White House. I once um, spent a summer living at the Savoy Hotel in London. And I, my favorite food, I love eating grilled ostrich. Uh, I'm 0 for 2 in this exercise, but so Laura, you go first. This is hard. It's hard to believe you had a job that had a direct telephone line to the White House, but you have done so many amazing things. Um, I'm going to say that you don't like grilled ostrich. The right answer. I, I, wait, wait, wait. wait, wait, wait oh, I, I got to give mine. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I believe you have never had a job with a direct line to the White House. Ah, a pregnant pause. I like it. No. The anticipation. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> anticipation. You'll be editing that bit. No, I, I don't eat grilled ostrich. I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> Um, a lifelong vegetarian, pretty much. Um, and I once really did have a phone that had a direct link, link to the White House because after I finished my first degree in behavioral science, which is psychology, sociology, philosophy, I worked in hotels in the US, the Marriott hotels. And I worked at the JW on Pennsylvania Avenue and I was a concierge. And we really did have a telephone that linked to the White House so that we could help organize theater trips or trips to galleries or dinner trips, etc. Did you ever use it? I was never allowed to. <laughs> <laughs> Still, just the proximity. That's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Nice. Well, thank you, Julie, for speaking with us today. This has been really fun. Thank you so much. And on that note, thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm 0 for 3, Brian Moon. Uh, learn more about naturalistic decision making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.
Mm-hmm.